this violent, fearful, hopeless, terrible circumstance where not only did they get trafficked into it and they have no access to their community and their family and their friends, but they have to then scam people from their country and that weighs heavy on them as well. Have you ever heard about modern slavery? And how is human trafficking related to online scams? Well, it appears that criminals have found a way to make a lot of money by forcing innocent people to hurt others. The scam plot thickens. Scam Rangers, a podcast about the human side of fraud and the people who are on a mission to protect us. I'm your host, Ayaret Bigger-Levine, and I'm passionate about driving awareness and solving this problem. Welcome to the third episode of Scam Rangers. I'm so excited to host an amazing person who truly inspires me with his work and his passion to spread awareness. He is a true ranger. Matt Friedman is an international human trafficking expert with more than 30 years of experience. He is CEO of the Mekong Club, an organization of Hong Kong's leading businesses, which have joined forces to help end all forms of modern slavery. Matt previously worked with USAID and the United Nations in over 30 countries, and he currently offers advice to numerous governments, banks, and corporations working to eliminate all forms of modern slavery. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hello. How are you doing? It's, uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. So, Matt, let's jump right in. Your work goes well beyond online scams. You focus on modern slavery that exists today in numbers that are hard to imagine. Millions of people globally in labor-related slavery, sex trafficking, and others. In our conversation today, I wanted to focus on a new kind of modern slavery that is surprising and shocking. But before we jump into that, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to this line of work. So my first exposure to the issue of uh, modern slavery, human trafficking, was about 30 years ago. I was living and working in Nepal. I was a public health officer. And at that time, we were seeing girls 12, 13 years old who were HIV positive, couldn't understand what was going on. So we went to go and visit them and to kind of hear their stories. And as part of that, we heard pretty much the same story over and over again. I went something like this, human trafficker, go into a village, flash a bunch of money around, say he's looking for a wife. He then find a girl 12, 13 years old, befriend her, go to the family and say, I'd like to marry your daughter. They're thinking, wow, he's rich, he's handsome, going to take care of our daughter, going to take care of us. A couple of days later, they actually have a wedding ceremony. The entire community is there. After that, he goes to the family and says, I'm going to take your daughter to Kathmandu, the capital, but don't worry, I'll be back in three months. But instead, he basically takes her to Mumbai, India, to the red light districts where the brothels are. He puts her in a room and he says, honey, stay here. I'll be back in a few minutes. As she was coming in, she saw all these people dress funny. She says, no, 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 don't leave me. I'm scared. He says, it's okay. I'll be right back. He goes to the madam to get the $500 for having sold her to the brothel. He has the gold from the wedding and he hands the wedding pictures over to her. He then leaves to go back to Nepal. Uh, to do this again and again and again. He tricks maybe 40, 50 women a, a year. The madam then goes into the room where the girl is and says, guess what? Your husband just sold you to me. 
and you're going to be with 20 guys a day every day because I say so. You can imagine this girl shocked. No, no, no. My husband loves me. No, that's what happened. When many of these girls internalize what's going on and even say, I'll kill myself before I do those shameful things. The madam then brings out the photo of the wedding and says, this is your mom, your dad, your brother, if you hurt yourself or hurt them. So she's trapped in this situation. In order to make her into a prostitute, you simply shame her. So they bring in a couple of professional rapists. And over a two-day time, they take this 12-year-old girl and rape her 20, 30 times until she eventually just lays back and accepts whatever happens to her. After that, she's put on the line. And as a result of that, she'll be with 20 guys a day, every day, till after a couple of years, she gets what's called black eye, where she's so depleted physically and emotionally, nobody wants her. So they throw her out in the street. So this was kind of my introduction to the issue of human trafficking. After hearing these stories over and over again, I, I was affected by them. I, I really felt like I wanted to do things. And so during the eight years that I was in Nepal, I, I focused on this issue. Then I went to Bangladesh and focused on sex trafficking, which is what I just described, plus forced labor. After that, I, I worked for the United Nations. I had programs in China, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Myanmar. And as a result of that, worked with governments and collected information and supported a lot of different programs related to this. And then after that, uh, set up the organization called the Mekong Club, which is very much involved in the scams that you were talking about. So I didn't really choose to do this. It basically chose me. And, you know, there are some other stories that I can tell that, that kind of describe how I kind of got over the line from being just a regular person to an activist. Tell me more about the Mekong Club. Okay, there's actually, according to the latest statistics, 50 million people in modern slavery. And out of that, 27 million are in forced labor. And out of that, 60% of them are associated with supply chains. That's where we get our food and our uh, fish and our electronics and apparel, footwear and apparel and so forth. So basically, the world has a certain number of organizations that try to address this. You have governments, you have the United Nations, you have the non-government organizations. But last year, out of the 50 million people in modern slavery, the world only helped about 100,000 of these people out of modern slavery, not even one percentage point. At the same time, the profits generated from this are $150 billion. As a result of that, Obviously, banks have to be concerned about this because, you know, if any of that money gets into a legitimate bank. So we set up the Macon Club to work with the private sector, the banks, the manufacturers, the retailers, the hospitality sector, to have them understand the issue and then to teach them that there are certain touch points associated with human trafficking that could create a business risk for them. It could be naming and shaming in the newspaper. It could be a fine or a penalty that a bank gets. It could be uh, a lawsuit against a, uh, a hospitality uh, organization. So as a result of this, we give them training. We raise awareness. We, we sensitize them, give them tools. And as a result of that, they can then address this particular issue. Now, part of the reason why I like working with the private sector is they're incentivized to actually address this when they find it. Whereas in the NGO and the government in the United Nations world, they tend to linger and it can take a long time. The moment there's a potential problem with a manufacturer, they're going to address this because they can't not address it. They have to because of the inherent business risk associated with it. So that's part of the reason why I chose to work with the private sector as opposed to a more traditional NGO model. 
Thanks for that explanation. And we'll definitely come back to that later. So I wanted to ask you if you can share one story of a victim that you met and that story changed you and turned you into the activist that you are today. You know, the thing about causes is we don't pick our causes. Our causes pick us. There's something about this topic that's in my DNA, and I just feel like I have to act to address it. And so eventually what happened is the Indian government approached uh, my office and they said, we need somebody to go into the brothels to do public health checks, to go and see that condoms are being used and safe sex and all kinds of other things. So I was invited to go to those same brothels. I had a police officer with me. I went into one of the brothels and there was an 11 year old trafficking victim. This girl saw this Caucasian guy, saw an opportunity, literally ran up and wrapped herself around me and said, save me, save me, they're doing terrible things to me. So as I looked down at this child who was hysterically crying, I turned to the police officer and said, we need to get this girl out of here. He said, you can't do that. I said, what are you talking about? You're a cop. He says, well, if we try to leave with her now, we'll both be killed. So to make a long story short, we left, we came back with a lot more police, but of course the girl was gone. Now I tell the story because I wasn't one of those 15 year olds in high school that says when I grow up, I want to work for an NGO and be an activist. In fact, I did everything I could not to be one. But every once in a while in life, we are challenged, we are tested. This was my test. I should have found a way of getting that girl out. I didn't. After that, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. And I did what a lot of activists eventually do. I surrendered to the fact that now that I've been exposed to this, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And 30 years later, here I am talking to you. Wow. It's one of those moments in life where you understand that you need to do something to make the world a better place. So now let's take it back to the topic of our conversation today. In the second episode, we talked about a scam called pig butchering, which is essentially a romance or relationship, friendship meets investment scam where a criminal typically starts a random conversation over SMS or WhatsApp and befriends the victim. The scammer proceeds to present a flashy, glamorous lifestyle and convinces the victim that they can have this lifestyle too if they invest in investment schemes, which are fake, of course. The victims initially make a small profit, growing it over time to gain trust, which is why it's called pig butchering, from the idea of fattening a hog for slaughtering. And then, when the victim invests an extremely large amount of money, the scammer ghosts them and disappears. What makes this awful scam that really drains people out of hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars even worse is the story of the criminals on the other side. So Matt, can you tell us about these scammers who conduct the pig butchering scams? And how does this relate to your work around modern slavery? Well, let me give you a little bit of background about what ha- is happening in Cambodia, which is where a lot of the spotlight is. So what happened during the pandemic is you had Chinese criminals that were in Cambodia. And like everybody else, they couldn't go out and do things and get money and so forth. And they ultimately came to determine that if you ask people for money, every 10th person is going to say yes, if you lie to them and you give them some type of a story and so forth. So they were thinking, wow, this is a pretty good business. There's 10 of us and we can go and scam a bunch of people. And then they had the idea, well, if there's 10 of us, what if we had 100 of us? We could scam so many more people. So they started approaching 
Asians to see whether or not they would join and get paid to do scamming. But a lot of the Asian people said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't feel comfortable with that. So they had this idea, let's trick and deceive educated people who now know how to use computers and social networking to come to Cambodia. And then once they're there, we'll just take them out of the system, put them in a facility that has high walls and barbed wire and a thousand people working in the same building and just force them to, to scam. And so what they would do in social networking is either a love kind of scenario where an attractive Asian woman would fall in love with uh, one of these people and say, I want to meet you personally, let's go to Cambodia. And once they get there, they're picked up in the van and taken away to this, or they are promised some kind of a job, 5,000 US dollars a month in a casino or a hotel or restaurant or whatever. For a young person just getting out of college, that's good money. It gets an opportunity to kind of see the world, to get out of Hong Kong or Taiwan or these other locations. As a result of this, they would actually go down uh, after job interviews and discussions, and it sounded like it was totally legit. But once they get there, they're basically put into one of these facilities. What they came to realize is the only way to really get them to, to achieve their goals is to create fear. And they do that through violence. So they taser young people, they'll beat them, they'll torture them, they'll use whatever means possible to basically motivate them to sit 14, 15, 16 hours a day in front of a screen to scan people from their own community with exactly the things that you just described. Can you share any numbers? How pervasive is this problem? You know, I, when, when I first heard about it, I, I couldn't get my mind around the fact that there were... There couldn't have been more than a couple hundred, but it's really in the thousands. You see facilities, for example, in certain Southeast Asian countries. Cambodia is the one that's most prominent in the news, but along the border in Myanmar, you have this. And you see these these almost apartment buildings that are set up that are, that are used for this particular purpose. Because of the pressure from families in Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland China, Singapore, and other locations, the authorities in Cambodia, to their credit, began to kind of shut some of these places down and rescue some of the people. But it's one of those push down pop up situations where you you end it there, but then it goes to the border of Myanmar or to Laos or to someplace else. And so the difficulty with this particular crime is that now that the model is available and people have seen it and they think it's lucrative, you're going to see more and more of these people. But what I've heard, and uh, this is from people who uh, are in the know and who are looking at this, that we're probably talking about thousands of people. Let's talk a little bit about the specific victims. So you explain kind of how they became part of the scam ring and how they were deceived. But what happens next? What is a typical day in the life of a scammer who's forced into scam labor? Tell me about the conditions they're kept in and how fear and force are used to make sure they do their job. Uh, wake up early in the morning, uh, basically yelled at, uh, hit, threatened. They'll eat uh, a simple meal and then they basically put them in front of the computers. And if they don't do fast enough, if they don't produce, if they don't uh, generate leads, if they're not able to move forward, sometimes they take individuals out and they'll uh, they'll beat them or taser them in order to incentivize them to do that they'll take one person out and have everybody watch it so that they can see what's going to happen to you if you go ahead and do this now what i find 
quite shocking about it is a lot of these young people are from families that uh, they don't have tr any trauma at all. They've never experienced anything like this. So all of a sudden they go from the regular world being what it is to this violent, fearful, hopeless, terrible circumstance where not only did they get trafficked into it and they have no access to their community and their family and their friends, but they have to then scam people from their country. And you know, that weighs heavy on them as well. Uh, a certain number of them don't survive the experience. They get beaten to death. In some cases, they're sold back to the families for 20, 30,000 US dollars. They also get sold between these, these different entities. So they can be sold three, four, five times. And with each time the debt goes up and, a lot of this is based on the assumption that because there is debt, because something had to be done in order to get them there, that they have to pay the debt back. And so, yeah, if you pay the debt back, you'll get released. But in reality, nobody's doing any accounting. Nobody's kind of making the comparisons. As long as a person is generating money, they're going to be stuck there behind that screen. So I read an article about someone who was a victim of human trafficking and had to scam people. And he talked about only generating about $30,000 from a victim, where his peers were able to generate $500,000 because they're taught to squeeze victims out of money. But he couldn't morally do that. He felt bad. So it made me wonder, what happens if they don't do a good job? If it looks as if the person is really trying and they just, they just don't have the skills or the creativity or whatever, they'll try to sell the person back to the family for $20,000, uh, we'll let this person go. So we've seen examples of that. Prior to the raids that were taking place, that's what we were seeing is that, uh, so you basically get your money back because you, you bought the person for $5,000 or whatever, but you sold them for 25 and so you, you, you basically had $20,000 out of it. So it's all about just getting as much out of each individual in whatever way you can. But uh, th there are just some people who just don't, will never have the skills or the abilities to do it. Uh, it's almost a double-edged sword in that, like if you do have the skills and the abilities, then you're stuck for a long time because they know you can do it and they're gonna just push you to do more and more because that's how they make their money. But I've seen the videos, they, they're circulating on social network uh, outlets and so forth. They're, they're quite extreme, they're, they're brutal and they're, they're just terrible to watch. It, it just, you know, I've seen a lot of things in my life, but just to see a young person, you know, cowering under a table and being hit with a stick or tasered and you just see the, the absolute sheer terror in their eyes, it's just horrible. So are people able to escape? Yeah, I mean, there, there are uh, some high uh, profile media coverage of people who jumped out of windows. Uh, some of them jumped out and were able to run away. Some of them jumped and hurt themselves and were managed to get away. Uh, some of them probably jumped out and didn't survive the experience, were brought in and who knows what happens to them. A, a lot of them are then stuck in Cambodia. They don't know who to trust. Uh, they're, they're afraid to go to the authorities. They don't know whether they'll get the help. They don't have any money. Uh, and so they try to piece together some mechanism to, to get enough money to get on a plane to get out of there. And they don't have their passports, right? Well, that's right. And so some of them try to be saviors for others. Uh, there's a couple of individuals who have been in the media that talk about how they're, they've stayed in that location and they're kind of working to identify the information and pass it along. 
But, you know, if the authorities don't initially accept this as an issue or accept that the people who are doing this are bad people, then you don't get the, the action that's needed. When all of a sudden good families are putting pressure on governments like Hong Kong and Taiwan and mainland China to address this, uh, and they start doing that, as I say, you can close these places down, but they pop up someplace else. And the very sad addition is that many Chinese residents could not go back home due to COVID restrictions. Right. So even if they managed to get the money and the emergency passport, they couldn't go home and they were stuck in Cambodia hiding, which kind of adds another layer of suffering. That's right. What do survivors share about the experience? In this situation, they suffer from all the quote unquote common impacts of human trafficking. However, they're not only being kidnapped and not only being beaten, they're also forced into hurting other people. How is that part in particular impacting their lives? Can they continue to go on after something like this? People uh, face all kinds of traumas in their life. I've seen within traditional sex trafficking, everything from the young person, the woman basically getting up and saying, thank you for saving me. I want to get on with my life to people being catatonic and they just can't, they can't move on beyond that. They're so, they're, they're so traumatized by the event and all kinds of people in between. It's the same with something like this. I suspect that some of them, when they get back to their home countries or territories will not travel much after that. They're just uh, fearful of the world. Some of them are going to have post-traumatic stress syndrome and various other ailments for an extended period of time. Some of them will never recover from this uh, because of the brutality of what they experience. It's, it all really depends upon these people. But a lot of people who end up being migrants and going from place to place have experienced a certain amount of pain and suffering in their life. You're talking about young people that have never really experienced anything. They have no defense mechanism for dealing with this. They just don't really know how to address it. And that's why it's so brutal for them. When you, when you watch what happens to them, it's, uh, you can just see the sheer terror in their eyes. So in your opinion, what more needs to be done and how can we drive real impact? Well, I think awareness raising among potential victims is essential. Helping people to understand if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Sensitizing people to the fact that if recruitment takes place, not through a legitimate organization, or if it's informal, or it seems like it's a coincidence, or like you said, a call that results in a conversation that results in a job offer, which results in something else, uh, you should stay away from those things. The second thing is uh, basically for uh, governments to really kind of spend some time, you know, going to airports and talking to people who are going off to different locations that are high risk to if they meet a particular age group and uh, uh, demographic and so forth to have a conversation with them to say, do you really know what you're doing? You're going off to Cambodia. We see this on your ticket. What are you going to do there? Did you know about X, Y, and Z? Even with that type of prevention. Sometimes you have people who do it anyways, because hope springs eternal. They just want it to be real. They want that money. They want to get on the plane. They want the adventure and so forth. There has to be bilateral kind of relationships between governments and territories that basically allow for there to be exchange of information about missing persons, about people who might be in this type of situation. 
And I, I think organizations like Interpol and the United Nations and other organizations that deal with law enforcement across regions and territories really need to step up. And the reason why I think this is so important is that if this is allowed to just expand and explode all over the world, then travel changes, the way people migrate changes, all kinds of things change. And we don't want to be there. We're getting post-COVID. We want to get back to people being able to enjoy going to countries and traveling and and seeing the world and everything else. We don't want it to move in the direction where people are uh, bound by fear. And as a result of that, a lot of the dynamics of traveling throughout Asia change. What you just said made me think about the parallel lines between people who are being scammed out of their money to people being scammed out of their freedom. We talk about ways to prevent online financial scams at the point of transaction or payment. Banks are looking at asking a bunch of questions such as, are you sure you know this person you're transferring the money to? But by the time they're actually transferring the money, they're already in an emotional state of fear or delight. They want to make this investment because they think they are going to make money or They're worried about their grandson who's in prison and they need to bail out. So at the point of transaction, or in the case of trafficking victims at the airport for travel, it's more often than not too late. I also think that education upfront is important, but it's not always in context because scammers keep coming up with new stories for these scams. And I really think the most effective way to stop this is to prevent these fake ads or fake messages before they present themselves to these victims. The same with scam messages and ads in case of financial scams. There are a certain number of kind of website monitor mechanisms that will look for these sites and try to shut them down. It's just that so many of them are put up simultaneously so quickly as a result of that, they, they can hardly keep up with it. The thing that draws people in social met, uh, networking is also the thing that is sensitizing people. And I hate to say it, but those uh, videos that are going around are pretty scary. It's not just the young people who are seeing, it's their parents because this is getting out there. As a result of that, it's created this entire sense of, well, you have to be fearful if you go off to a country like Cambodia because automatically something like this is going to happen. Now, that's not the case. A lot of people go to Cambodia. They go there for vacation. It's a nice country and you can do all kinds of things. But this fear is creating that that semblance of, of doing something. And, and, and again, I come back to governments being able to talk to each other to say, we feel like we have people from our country and territory that have ended up there and we want them back. We know that they went there, but they didn't come home. And so we think that they're there. You've got to help us with this process. So no country wants to be perceived as that location where crime can flourish but that's kind of going to happen with some of these these countries if they don't deal with it pretty soon. So, I mean, I think there are remedies that can be put in place, but the will has to be there for the way to actually move forward to happen. So let's take a different perspective slightly, and maybe we can talk a little bit about how this connects with ESG, environmental social governance, and how companies can play a role here in contributing to fighting this double-edged sword of human trafficking type scam. 
So within ESG, it's about kind of demonstrating that a company is doing right by E, the environment or G, governance, the way they govern their organization or S for human rights and modern slavery and all of that type of thing. Uh, Up until recently, much of the emphasis has been on voluntarily identifying indicators uh, so that big companies could then go to investors and say, we're solvent and we're sustainable and we're risk-free. I think what's going to happen post-COVID is that uh, it'll be monitored, it'll be mandated, it'll be uh, kind of regulated. Government agencies are going to be involved in this. And so what's going to happen is big companies are going to be prescribed what those indicators are, and they're going to have to demonstrate that, in fact, those indicators mean things. So if, for example, you're finding that banks are losing a fair amount of money related to these types of scams, that would somehow be reflected in that. In manufacturing and some of these other things, it's not not as clear how this might work, but certainly travel companies, airlines, hotels, the, the delivery people, the people who move people from one place to the other, they're all going to get caught up in this because they may uh, unknowingly be part of the chain of events that gets that person into this particular location. And so as people get more and more kind of fearful of this because it has that boogeyman feeling to it. You don't really know who these people are and whether or not you're going to get caught up in this. And you don't know when people are telling you the truth or not the truth, there will be more pressure for any group that has any touch point to this to be able to to address this. And as that process happens, and when you're looking at a higher level of ESG, those two come together. Are you doing the things to protect the people for which you can then get points within ESG in order to demonstrate that you're a company that cares and you're a company that's doing the right thing? That will definitely mandate organizations to take more responsibility and help. You know, one point you made a few times is the notion of the world not feeling safe anymore to the extent that people will not want to travel and will stay close to home. But then we feel that the digital realm is not safe anymore either because of all the scams that are happening. So it's really driving trust in both the physical and digital worlds and having governments and organizations do the right thing to support that. So I'd like to wrap up on a positive note and ask you, Matt, what are you hopeful about in all of this and everything we talked about? Well, I think that if you look at the world a hundred years ago, there were all kinds of issues of disparity and sexism and criminal activity and all kinds of things. And a hundred years later, it's a lot better. Many countries go through transitions, even the United States in the 1930s and 40s. uh, Prior to the war, you had a lot of organized crime involved in politics and a lot of overt corruption and so forth. And over time, that was regulated. It's not completely eliminated, but it's a lot better. And you see this transition taking place all over the world. My hope is that as the world continues to move down this track, as it becomes more acceptable for human rights and equality and fairness and justice to be in place, then many of these things will be addressed Uh, not at the pace that we want it to be, but at the pace that will eventually allow for the world to achieve a much more just uh, scenario. And as a result of that, I think some of these things will be taken care of. 
when you see terrible things that have taken place in the world uh, and the world decides to address it, they can, they can address these things. We have less hunger, we have uh, less poverty, we have more education, we have more opportunities. All of these things have resulted in the world getting better. So if you look at this just as it is, you might think that the world isn't very good. But there's a lot of other aspects that are. So I'm very hopeful that this will eventually catch up and be a part of the hopefulness that we'll see as the world continues to get better and better at whatever pace it gets at. But it'll eventually get there for sure. Amen to that. So I wanted to thank you so much for joining me today and for helping to shed some light on this important topic. Thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity.